0: The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media, technology, cuisine, authors, much more. Full
1: disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. Being a person who came from such a challenging childhood, trying to get to the gig of my family to safety, when you have an opportunity to enjoy life, I think you should, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Uh, You know, life is too short. I feel like we've all worked very, very hard to be to get to where we are, but there must be a balance.
0: Coming off a Persian pop-up dinner I co-hosted right here in Richmond, I learned a ton about food service, customer service, inflation, labor, just some of the many inputs that make the restaurant business so tricky to navigate. Now imagine having to cram all that as a poor teenage refugee who had to juggle his restaurant hours with schoolwork and ADHD. After 25 years of that grind, my guest, Chef Sebastian Ovesi, is finally pausing to take stock and assert some sort of work-life balance stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. And here we are, joining me on a gorgeous day from an RV park in Ashland, Hanover County, Virginia, is none other than Chef Sebastian Ovesi and his
1: RPod mini camper. How are you, sir? I am doing great, man. You know, uh, I couldn't be better being in a setting like this, you know, uh, surrounded by nature and a beautiful day like today.
0: Well, we're going to talk about it because two nights ago, as I explained to the listeners, we were surrounded by hungry diners and a frenzied kitchen. And you and I have now dabbled in three events, two food trucks. Yep. Right. You came here with uh, the food truck you recently owned, Saffron Gourmet, which is a huge thing in northern Virginia. If you guys looked it up, You've, you've recently put that business up for sale. But we wanted to follow up because those were so well received with an actual pop up dinner event at a venerable diner in Richmond, which was too well received, if you will. Yeah, it was so crowded. We kind of ran out of food. And for one evening at least I got to live in the mindset that your family has dealt with now for several years yep. at the restaurant in Northern
1: Virginia. Yeah, now, now you know, Robin, now you know my friend, you know what it takes to uh, to operate a restaurant. Yeah, it's a lot of work, you know. Um and if you don't have the passion for it, I it's it could it could be very challenging, you know. Fortunately, for me and my family, uh we all are very passionate about food and the restaurant industry, so I feel like that passion really has uh, incentivized our success.
0: Now you came here to the United States as a refugee in nineteen ninety four. Correct. Yeah. Uh from, from the Middle East, from Turkey. But you were born in Iran.
1: I was born in Iran. Um my father before nineteen seventy nine joined the Shah's regime was one of the military officers for the Shah of Iran. And uh when the revolution happened, you know, you had the um the Islamic Extremist government coming in, and they pretty much uh, arrested any official that was from the previous government. A lot of them were executed. My dad and his colleagues were arrested at their office, uh, at the military base, and they were they were sent to jail. uh, And my father was at the famous Iran prison, the Evin prison, for a long time, for years, and he was actually scheduled for an execution. And uh, while he was in prison, he was tortured and. Uh, And, you know, sent to a prison hospital where he was able to escape with another inmate. And, you know, swam a kilometer across a river in their hospital gown and ended up in Turkey. And through the U.N. refugee services that used to have an office in the capital city of Ankara in Turkey, my dad filed for asylum visas for, for their families through the U.S. embassy. And, you know, the rest is... History. We ended up coming here. We got our, our visas got approved. We ended up coming to the U.S. in March of 1994.
0: But you were born in 1981, right when yes. the uh, Ayatollahs were taking power. Was he in jail when you were born? Yes.
1: So I, I didn't meet my father until about six years after I was born. So the first time I actually met him when when he got the family to Iran. I, I'm sorry, from, from Iran to Turkey. So when that was when, when my family got to. Turkey, that's when I actually met my father, because my father actually had smugglers get the family out. After he escaped, the government was looking for them. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, the military trucks was stopped by the house looking for my father for months. And uh, I remember um, seeing a military truck parked right outside of our house in Iran for months after his escape. And at one point, we thought he was, you know, he was dead. And then, uh, you know, middle of the night, a few years after, about two years after he escaped, in the middle of the night, he, you know, we we got a call. And the next morning, we were out with uh, some fellas that my dad had coordinated a plan with and went to Turkey and we met up with my father.
0: What was the first time meeting your father like?
1: You know, when you're a kid, it's really, really hard to grasp that kind of, uh, you know, situation. You know, I, I think at that point, you know, uh, I, I, I was very anxious to meet him. I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I, I had uh, I had only heard stories about who he was and why he was not with us. And then, but I think after I met him, that's when, you know, my family finally felt like they were, it's complete and things just started make a lot more sense as to what my family was and why we were there and why we we left Iran.
0: Did you grow up speaking Turkish
1: and Farsi? I actually, I I grew up speaking Kurdish and Farsi. So my mother's side of the family, they're Iranian Kurds. Uh, And my dad is also partially Kurdish as well. So I I grew up, uh, you know, in my my household, I grew up learning two languages, Kurdish and Farsi. When I was in elementary school in Iran, you know, the education was taught in Farsi. But at home, I spoke Kurdish.
0: For our next collaboration, by the way, we should do something like Kurdish Kurds. Oh, absolutely, a dairy no, dish. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> dude, you know at our <laughs> we
1: actually didn't. Uh, we did a, We did host an Kurdish event, which you know, I I was really surprised for, by the, by the type of turnout we ended up having. I had no idea how many Kurds were living in the Washington D.C. metro area, and then after a little bit of more research, come to find out, they're actually one of the one of the biggest uh, uh, Kurdish populated regions outside of Kurdistan. It's actually in Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, there's like there's a huge Kurdish population. There's actually an area in right outside of Nashville. It's called the uh, uh, the Kurdish Village. The Kurdistan something like that it's really cool when you go there's a lot of, all these supermarkets and grocery stores that specialize in Kurdish food and spices and it's pretty pretty unique I was very surprised to uh, discover that actually
0: so take me to 1994 uh, you flew to the United States directly
1: yeah so from uh, I, I mean the, it was a process I mean my family you know when when you um, I, I mean I don't know how the, the procedure is now but back then uh, refugees in Turkey that were applying for you uh, United States asylum. They would, once they got the approval, they would have to go through uh, a series of screenings, such as interviews, medical screenings, and uh, some vetting process. And once you, had, once you go through that process, that's when they will give you a date, uh, you know, plane tickets and all that stuff to, to fly. So it took us about three, four months to go through that process. But once that pro- pro- process was approved, we flew uh, directly from Istanbul to New York. What were those first few weeks like?
0: Your impressions, uh, she, because now you're 13, you can remember.
1: Yes, I mean that. That it was actually a culture shock because mm-hmm. you know. Remind you, I lived in Turkey. Um, you know. Right. Right. Prior to coming to the states, and when we lived in Turkey, I actually picked up the Turkish language very well. I mean, for somebody who speaks multiple languages, who grew up learning two different languages, it's a lot easier for them to learn another language because their brain, I just feel like my brain, it, it knows how to pick up another language. It, it's a lot easier for somebody who speaks speaks multiple languages than it is somebody who only speaks one language to pick up another language. So picking up Turkish was actually relatively easy for me. But then as soon as we came to the States, I completely forgot to uh, speak uh, Turkish because I was trying to pick up English mm. and I didn't have any practice of Turkish. You know, I, I mean, I still babble words and stuff like that and I still... Very much loved the Turkish music and, you know, the culture that I was exposed to. But, you know, once we got to the U.S., you know, our, our life was pretty much, uh, our focus was pretty much on how to build a life here.
0: So remind me of those first few days. Where were you living? Was there low-income housing? or did Yeah, you, it was low-income housing. You and took unfo- a job and your parents took jobs?
1: Yeah. So when we came in, remind you, my dad is a, he was a deputy lieutenant for the Iranian Air Force during the Shah's regime. So for for somebody to be able to come and do a the type of work that he did, it, I think it's very, um, uh, It's very inspiring because I think it takes a man to sit on his pride to save his family. I mean, he went from telling people what to do to delivering donuts for Dunkin' Donuts at nighttime for $75 a night. It's not, you know, and it's a lot easier said than done. But I think it really takes a a real man to sit on that kind of pride and suck it up to be able to provide for their family. And that's something I admire about my father. And I think, I hope to God that I have traces of that. Uh, Your mother
0: was a housekeeper simultaneously? Yes.
1: And well, initially when we came to the state, my dad and my oldest brother were the ones that worked. And it's funny because, you know, this all kind of leads into how we ended up in the restaurant business. But so my dad was working at for Dunkin Donuts, delivering donuts to 7-Elevens around the region. Okay, I mean, he would travel like 150, 200 miles away from the home in the middle of the night from 11 o'clock at night. I mean, you know, those are like graveyard shifts. And he would you know come home at 530 in the morning. And then immediately after that, he maybe get two, three hours of sleep and then go work at a Persian restaurant at the time was called Cafe Rose in City of Falls Church in Virginia. He got a job there as a busser, uh, as a busboy, and uh, the gentleman that owned the restaurant was a much elderly uh, Iranian immigrant. Iranian immigrant, but he—I mean—he had been here for years. He had caf—he had opened Cafe Rose back in 1986, and so when we arrived in 1994, my dad, one of first, one of his first jobs was working for Cafe Rose as a busboy. So he worked his way up to a to a wa- uh, to a waiter, and uh, and then ultimately ended up becoming a, uh, the restaurant manager. And then he brought my my oldest brother in, who at the time, prior to that, prior to working with my dad, he was working for a halal meat distributor cutting a butcher, pretty, pretty much. He was a butcher and then also uh, another graveyard shift that he had to do. And, you know, they pretty much, both of them worked around the clock, like nonstop. And, you know, we, I, I, honestly, looking back, I have no idea how we were able to, uh, make ends meet with the type of uh, income that they had coming in. But after about a couple of years of working, my dad working for Cafe Rose, the uh, the owner went up to my dad and, you know, told him, look, you know, I'm getting much older. I'd like to retire. I don't want to be here. I want to go back to Iran. So if you want, I'll give you the restaurant. Just, you know, just you just send me money every month until it's paid off. And that's pretty much what happened. You know, my my father took the restaurant over literally on sweat equity uh, oh yeah absolutely absolutely no cash, up no front cash anything. absolutely nothing it was just him and his determination to make sure his family was okay and it was the i mean it was the efforts of both of them my brother my oldest brother and my father and then um at that point you know i was like 11 or 12 13 maybe and you know i every day after school i would go to the restaurant and help my family out with the business I mean, I'd do anything from washing dishes to cleaning tables. And after I was done with those, I would grab my book bag, go at one of the booths and do my homework. I mean, that was my life for years uh, up until I became an adult and, you know, decided to do my own thing.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Chef Sebastian Ovesi. He is barely just a little bit over 41 years old, and he's telling us the story of his family coming to the United States. He was born in Iran. His father was uh, in the uh, air force of the deposed Shah, and then the Islamic Revolution happened. And how they were upended and came here and got this education as a restaurant family, and now kind of we're going to get into striking out on his own. I want to quote Uh, Chef Seb from uh, Arlington Magazine, which has profiled you several times. It says, putting Persian food on the map. Chef Sebastian Ovesi and his family came to the U.S. as refugees. Now he has dreams of a James Beard Award. When you describe uh, Persian food not getting the recognition it deserves, you said, no, it's underrepresented. It has the potential to be on the national stage like Italian and French. I want to be the person to put it in the spotlight. Let me give everybody a background. When I was a... uh, very. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Northern Virginia doing stuff for PBS and NPR, um, and I always go to a. I used to go to a cello Kababi, a, a really crowded Persian restaurant called Shamshiri, until somebody tipped me off and said there's a much more soulful place down the road about 15 minutes away called Amuz. And I went there and I checked it out. It's not far from Capital One headquarters in Tyson's. And I had the restaurant to myself. It was a really late lunch. And I had a spectacularly tender kebab. And I looked over and saw some, what I thought was a kid on a laptop. And I go up to him and I was like, who owns this place? Do you speak Farsi? He's like, yeah, it's my family. Who's asking? But <laughs> well, fast forward a little bit, I find out that he his his darling is his food truck business. This is a couple of years ago. And we brought him to Richmond. And uh, six months into the pandemic, it was a freezing day outside. He brought the food truck to Scott's Edition in downtown Richmond. Completely sold out. People begged us to bring him back.
1: And the the brewery actually ended up closing because the weather was so so bad. So bad, yeah. And then
0: you sold out again at Maimon and you came (laughs) back. But here's an interesting fork in the road, Chef Seb. We're out here because after you do a big event and you can follow his stuff on YouTube as kind of this nomadic culinary person, I noticed that after you do these massive events for celebrities or you work at the family restaurant on a, on a you know, 48, 72-hour grind, you typically shut off and go into this RV and I find you post something on Facebook from Montana or Texas.
1: Yeah, you know, um, with COVID, you know, hitting back in 2020, it really changed the dynamics of the business for us, and and you know, I am so grateful we were able to sustain, and we are still going hardcore. And um, but w- the one thing it did, because it, it like I said, it changed the dynamics of the business. so we, I mean, we were sixty percent dine in and about forty percent carry out and all of a sudden that changed i mean it became 100% carry out and therefore because you know our dining room was closed you know uh, it didn't require as many staff or myself to be there consistently to uh, have the restaurant operate successfully you know doing carry out is definitely not as as labor consuming as it is if you would ha- if you were to have a, uh, your full your dining room uh, fully open
0: and your dining room on a Friday night or a Sunday night is absolutely packed. It's and packed. It's not and a very we good have anywhere room.
1: between 15 to 45 minutes or an hour wait on like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday midday. So when that, when, when the pandemic hit, it actually, and because the dynamics changed, it actually gave a lot more time uh it provided a lot more time for me to spend with my family with my wife and so you know just browsing through uh online i came across this you know travel trailer and that i i just i was you know i just fell in love with it as soon as i saw it i'm like oh my god this is this is it this is the the one item i've wanted since i was a kid and finally i was in a position to purchase it and as soon as i bought it the next thing i know i'm on youtube looking at videos on how to maintain them how to repair them and then that led to me flying I actually drove. I drove down to uh, Texas to uh, go to the training academy and become a certified RV technician and uh, RV inspector. Which, as you know, I just start, I launched another business that specializes. Yeah, and hence
0: we find ourselves interviewing Chef Sebastian Ovesi at an RV park in Hanover County, Virginia. But you skipped a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, you used to sublimate, you know, your your uh, nomadic tendencies by being the head of. Saffron Gourmet, the thriving food truck in Northern Virginia. Yeah. There are all sorts of videos of this, of you showing up, of you driving in kind of crepuscular darkness yeah. at four in the morning. You find a great spot somewhere in Arlington near office towers or in a big office park. You squat on that Uber back to the restaurant. This is in this Tysons. is
1: pre-pandemic. Yeah, this was when when you know uh, a lot of the commercial office building, the white collar jobs were still were you know were were you know happening at full capacity. So like um, uh, one of our main revenues. Was from corporate complexes. So, I, and and in order to get a spot, a decent spot where you were visible, um, you would have to, I would have to actually uh, drive my car, personal car, to the spot where the food truck was going. At what time? At like four four o'clock in the morning. Uh Four o'clock in the morning, be there, save a spot, and then take an Uber back to the restaurant, load up the truck, get everything ready, drive back to the uh, location, move my car, park my food truck operate. And after we were done, I would take the food truck back to the restaurant, take an Uber back, grab my car. And that was- pretty- As a one-man operation. It was a one-man operation. And I, that I, that went on for almost seven years.
0: But here's the deal. Yeah. People on YouTube and all over Instagram and everybody raving about you, both on the food truck and in the dining room, but still a palpable sense of burnout. You know, you and I have shared notes- Oh, yeah. On the outside absolutely. of this during the labor shortage of the restaurant industry. Oh, yeah. How did you motivate? How did you- do it. You did you do it to kind of try to you know, for example, get fourteen days in and then disappear for a week? in the that RV? was exactly
1: my mindset because once I was in a position where I could step away from the restaurant for four or five days at a time, and you know, no, you know, nothing would go wrong. I I just felt like you know what, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna work three four weeks straight, and then I'm gonna take a week week and a half off or take two weeks off Uh, and then finding that balance what really opened up my eyes to being able to enjoy life you know working 90 days in a row working uh, without any day off or working 70 80 hours a week is just I I, I just couldn't see that being feasible uh, long term you know i want to spend time with my wife i want to travel you know and you know being the, a person who came from um such a challenging childhood trying to get to the uh, gig get in my family to safety it, when you, when you have an opportunity to enjoy life i think you should and that's exactly what i'm doing you know life is too short i feel like we've all worked very very hard to be to get to where we are but there's there there must be a balance and i i feel like past couple of years if there's anything good that came out of covid is I was able to finally create a balance between work and my personal life and the desires that I have in life. And, you know, when things are starting to go back to normal, you know, I, that whole process has really taught me how to organize where, eat, you know, now with the, the restaurant working at full capacity again, because of that experience I went through, as far as trying to find a balance, I'm actually, I'm able to apply that to our normal way of, operating the restaurant. So now, you know, my family and I, we all rotate. You know, my sister takes a couple of days off. My dad takes a week off. I take a couple of weeks off. And we rotate, and we have been able to manage very effectively doing it this way.
0: Legend has it that you were a South Beach DJ. Am I making that up? I mean, I grew up in Miami. I'm a <laughs> Miami. I'm a Florida man. So you know How when did I, that happened? When did that happen? So
1: you know, I've always loved the music techno. I mean, techno is one of the is the type of music you either love it or you hate it. And I I just loved it even when I was like nine or ten years old in Iran. We would get these like old cassettes that were like the really poor quality, but it was all we could get. And uh, when I, when I came to the states and I turned 18, I started uh, you know I started making mixtapes and and demos and giving them out to uh, nightclub promoters and uh, I ended up uh, getting booked for as a DJ for a couple of the nightclubs in DC uh, for a few years. As it's, it's music is one of one of my other passions. And your
0: father's not like stick to kebab.
1: <laughs> no, my parents were not really fond of the nightclub business. You know, obviously it's an environment that you know it could get a little wild yeah. um and uh therefore you know at the time I you know I I had to choose okay what do I want to do do I want to do I want to become a successful chef or do I want to become a successful DJ and then being a chef it just made more sense to me especially because I grew up in my family's restaurant and how familiar I am with cooking and and food and, you know, how to how to manage food safely and all that. So it's just it just made more sense. So uh, ultimately, the music just became a hobby. And I still have my I have this small studio in my house and rest in Reston, which I don't really use that much. But uh, I don't know if you notice on some of my YouTube videos, I actually the music that you hear, those are music that are actually created by my by by me. I did not know this. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of selection. It's just a couple of tracks that I use, uh, you know, in different parts of the video. And I've been using the same sounds, unfortunately, to for a lot of my videos. But that's because I also don't have a whole lot of time to produce.
0: It never occurred to you to put a turntable or two outside of your food truck? Oh, uh, yeah. The march.
1: idea, the idea was actually brought There's up. the NBA talking? <laughs> you know, the idea was actually brought up by one of the uh, one of the customers we uh, we cater to and you know this was for a big office building they actually they're like you know bring a dj bring your dj coin bring the food truck and i and i had to let them know that i can't do both at the same time so <laughs> but no it's you know i love music but you know cooking it's really like that's where my heart how long were you in miami uh for almost four years yeah 2000 uh, from 2000 and 2008 to 2011 and didn't cook at all down there No, I did. I was working. So I was working for Italian restaurant there. Well, Italian French. It was a place called Gusto Vino and Cafe in South Beach. But it was on the on the side where all the locals lived. Uh, I think it was uh, Alton and 8th, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Unfortunately, that restaurant is no longer there. But yeah, I was there. I worked. So I I worked their brunch uh, shifts like early in, in the morning and lunch and brunch. And then I, and, and in the evenings, I would go to the club and DJ and stuff like that. It was a crazy lifestyle, to be honest with you. I have no idea how I was able to manage doing those with only a couple of hours of sleep at times. But again, I was young and, you know, it's, your body definitely, it's, it's at a different state when you're that age, you know. yeah, It's not like now where 10 o'clock, I got to pass out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, we are talking to Chef Sebastian Ovesi, who wants to bring Persian cuisine to the country. Please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and family. Uh, dote on me, if you will, please. We are also on NPR member station Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the great commonwealth. We are on WERA Radio Arlington, 96.7, up in Northern Virginia and much of D.C. Uh, In Asheville, North Carolina, we are on WPVM and out west in Ventura, California, on KPPQ. Please contact me if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. We're talking to Chef Sebastian Ovesi. There's this headline, again, from Arlington Magazine, putting Persian food on the map. His chef's journey, which started when he was born in Iran in 1981, didn't meet his father, who was fled prison and potential execution by the Islamic Republic, fled to Turkey, fled to the United States by 1994. Here we are almost three decades later talking about his chef's journey, which is still a work in Process, let me ask you uh who taught you the real nuts and bolts of cooking?
1: oh my parents definitely
0: so what what point was it I'm not busing tables, I'm not doing any of this stuff as a teenager, and at what point I want to hear like did you were you able to take your eyes off studies
1: uh well you know i i, I didn't you know i unfortunately I didn't stay in school I dropped out when I was in, when I was in high school so like when I was a think sophomore year did your parents give you grief oh my god yeah I did yeah, my mom was ex- extremely like angry with me um but you know at the same time I, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I had a really hard time sitting still in a classroom and actually listening to a full lecture it took a lot for me to do that and you know and you know working at the restaurant and I just felt like you know at the time I at a very young age I, I knew that the restaurant business is something that I wanted to do later in life. And after all the fighting and the arguments back and forth with my parents over the fact that I dropped out, you know, they finally agreed to let me work. And, you know, on the condition that I'd go back and get my GED and and, you know, and it worked out. So I was working there full time. Um, uh, so during the day, I would um, like for lunchtime because we didn't have it was a very small restaurant, like nine tables. So lunchtime, we, we usually we used to have a hard time finding uh, servers that wanted to work there for lunch. So I was actually serving the tables um, for a while. And then um, after the restaurant became more popular and we started getting we, st- we expanded a, a portion of it. So like on the outside, we built out a little outdoor seating and like it was fenced in. It was really nice so when that when we built that uh we started getting a huge lunch uh, crowd especially in the summer, spring and summer and fall you know when the weather's really nice out and that required my family to either hire an additional cook or ask me to go to the back and then we ended up hiring new new servers so i i would say I, when i was 15 or 16 i ended up in the kitchen helping my family out
0: now, you know, fast forward to the present. I see when you post photos, both of the restaurant, the family's restaurant, Amuz in Northern Virginia, and your catering business, you are catering for various congresswomen. I saw you did a dinner for the actor Robert Duvall. Oh, yeah. Uh, comedian who's been on the show in the past. Uh, Mazdra Brani who just performed at uh, the Kennedy Center, has been there. Jason Rezaian. Uh, Terry McAuliffe. Who was the former governor of Virginia, and who' was campaigning, he got the Democratic nomination last time, showed up there. It's it's quite a hub of activity and celebrity.
1: Yeah, and you know the most, I think one of the most proudest moments that I had was when I cooked for the Andrea Bocelli and his orchestra when they were in- For Bocelli and his orchestra. And his orchestra. In 2015, he had a concert at the Verizon Center, which I think is called Capital One Arena. Right now, yeah. Yeah, um, at the time, and the gentleman, the promoter, the U.S. promoter for Andrea Bocelli is a gentleman that, I have done. I've I've helped with his huge gala dinners and things that he does for like for the National Italian American Foundation. I worked with him a little bit, so I I was a little well connected. And he's also John Salomon, the gentleman that I'm speaking about right now. He's also he's very familiar with my family's food. So when he was finally able to book Andrea Buccelli for the concert in Washington, he reached out to me. He said, "Hey, would you be interested in, in uh, cooking?" Uh, and, you know, serving food before the concert start for Andrea Buccelli, his VIP uh, guest, and his orchestra. Uh, it was a, a lot of pressure. But, Let but me ask was, you, what, is the, very proud, very proud what is the moment.
0: value, especially when younger people like the comedians like Maz Gibran, shows up at your restaurant or your food truck and Instagrams a photo with you? Like, what is the value of that imprimatur,
1: that impression? You're very active yeah, it, on social media, as I am. It's priceless. It's absolutely priceless, yeah, because, you know, you, when you have somebody that, that has such, such a huge platform and comes and gives you such uh, uh, a public credit, it's just it, it only it only solidifies the fact that, you know, this is the result of your hard work. It just makes you feel proud and more confident and, and makes you more determined to start all over again the next day. Um, no, it's, it's very valuable, and I am very grateful I've had the opportunities to serve for such big people, such big names.
0: In the few minutes we have left with you, Chef Sepp, uh, are you part of the great rethink, great resignation right now? Because there's a part of you that I realize that wants to get in this mini camper over here and just drive away and be forgotten yeah. for a long time. And you, you fantasize about that publicly yeah. online, but I imagine you'd get bored and you'd miss the adulation of, of diners and guests. Or this would pull you back somehow.
1: No, I, I think, I mean, I mean, you're definitely right. And I, if
0: you hear in the background, there's a huge RV driving right past this i mean this is definitely where you like to be
1: oh yeah i i love this it's like i said it's uh you know if if there's anything positive that came out of covid was i was actually finally able to find some freedom to be able to go out and travel and not work like three months in a row without any any days off no i mean there is you know you know the restaurant business if you if you're a chef and you love this business it's the type of business that really has a grip on you and you can never really walk away from it because there's that instant gratification you get from when when a when a, when a guest gives you feedback about the food. I and mean, it's 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 like it's the best natural high you can get. You know, and this is you you know, you say to yourself, this is the result of my work, this is what I have done. So I think that feeling, that gratification, it's it's very addictive. It's very uh it's very hard to walk away from. And you might be you may be able to find other things that you um, may take interest in, but if you're a chef, if you have passion for food, it is extremely difficult to walk away. Now, with that in mind, I I, I do I have taken a huge step back as I'm sure you you've been aware. I'm not You watching, sold
0: the food truck. I sold the food much truck. Much to the chagrin of a lot of people in Northern Virginia. Now that people are showing back up at office Oh parks.
1: yeah, I mean a lot of my regulars are very upset. I mean, I have this one lady that like every 3 4 days or so <laughs> sends me a message like I miss you. I miss the food. You need to come back, you know, and and you know, and I and, I, and it feels great and, I, and and a part of me is kind of sad that i'm not operating the food truck but at the same time i i I barely had any days off and you know life is good when you're able to enjoy your time you know enjoy the fruit of your labor if you're just working 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 and you're not giving yourself uh uh, to enjoy your all your hard work I, i just what's the point you know and i and i get to when i you know i turned 40 i i got to that You know, point, you know, like, what is the point of me working every single day without taking any time off? Um, And, you know, my wife and I, you know, thank God she works remotely. And that has really, really created an opportunity for us to just, you know, like every so often. Hey, you know what? Let's let's pack up. Let's grab the RV. Let's go cross country. And you know we've done several cross country trips. You know I've been to numerous national parks, and uh, you know we have plans uh, to to visit more. And yeah, and you know, and with that, even the fact that I'm traveling a lot, oh, there's there are times where I miss the dining room. I miss the kitchen, and I, I, I you know I want to go back and and, and work full time. There's I I have all those thoughts, but then again, I remember how exhausted I, I would become, and how my wife never. Barely had any time uh, to spend with me because I was always gone. So now, with the food truck being gone, and you know, uh, and with the launch of my new RV business, uh, and tell me
0: about that. You got rapidly after you turned forty, you got certification to be yeah. a, an RV inspector, which brought you to Ashland, Virginia. Yeah, yes. Which yeah. you're ever on nine ninety five, just north of Richmond. You see all these RV parks and all these RV businesses and everything. It's one of the RV capitals of America. And you quickly found work here, and you told me when we were doing this pop up dinner that, look, my labor and everything it's not all about the money for you, but what what would you know a hundred dollar unit of labor for me to be brought in for an inspection versus right now, especially with food inflation and labor inflation to
1: eke out of the restaurant business is a whole different oh, bag yeah. of oranges. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you know, the restaurant business, if you're able to get, like, anything above 40% back in profit margin, you're golden. The RV business is completely different. In RV business, we're talking about 98, 99% profit. So, you know, and and the, the labor is definitely not as as much as as doing the restaurant business. You know, you, it's kind of like a nine-to-five type of job and you have some, you know, in most part, you have your Sundays off and some, some techs, they take Saturdays off as well. But, you know, the point being, it's, it's, it's my own business. I make my own schedule. It gives me the freedom to travel. And, you know, I have, you know, my, my business sign on my, my pickup trucks. As soon as I pull into a campground, I mean, I kid you not, I have multiple people coming up and telling me, hey, I had this issue with my RV. Can you fix it? So even while I'm traveling, I'm able to make money and essentially have my uh, travels being self-sustained. Would it kill you if your Ford F one fifty
0: also get off, gave off the smell of kebab at the same time? <laughs> you thought, and you had a turntable. Uh, yeah, we not, uh, Robert. We talked about our balance, my friend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> chef Sebastian Ovesi putting Persian food on the map uh, is a uh, uh, what do I call you? A wandering chef, uh, a wandering spirit. A nomadic chef, a nomadic chef. Yeah, yeah with yeah. this with this mini camper that you bought during the pandemic during which you turned 40 and decided that you wanted balance in your life um I hope that you find it, and I hope that we get a chance to work on more food collaborations. No, absolutely, it's certainly been an education for me in, infa- in inflation and in backbreaking work, in operations, in customer expectations. You really can never take any of this stuff for granted.
1: No, absolutely not. It's uh, you know, it's it's, it's it's a tough business, but again, you know, anybody that I have ever met in the restaurant business that have been doing this for a long time, I I, I have yet to hear any of them say I don't like this business. They, they're in it really purely. On the basis of how passionate they are, it's not, it's, it's rarely, because people don't get in the restaurant business to make money. I, I, I promise you that, okay? And if anybody tells you, hey, I got in the restaurant business to become a millionaire, they're full of BS, okay? Because at least from my experience, everybody, every ma- major chef that I have met, everybody that I've worked with, every hotel that I've operated at, they all tell me the same thing. They're in this business because they love it and you know and of course you know i am i'm a firm believer if you're passionate about something if you're passionate about your job you're going to make money yeah and you know i and that's you know exactly exactly what happened with my family we're all very passionate about the food business we you know we were kind of forced in it my, 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 my dad was kind of forced to get into the restaurant business, but it only paved the way uh, uh, for me to build a career um, that, that, that has continued for 22 years. Um, no, it's definitely, you have to have the passion because uh, it's, if you don't have the passion, you will not succeed in the business.
0: Chef Sebastian Ovesi, please come back.
1: Would love to. Thanks for having me, Robin. I really appreciate it, buddy. Full disclosure,
0: stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please rate us and recommend us to friends and family. If you are just joining us, we were discussing the chef's journey of Iranian refugee, Chef Sebastian Ovesi. Let's flash back to how trauma shaped a world-renowned foodie. My 2020 interview with Andrew Zimmern, the Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality and chef who climbed out of a deep hole of homelessness and alcoholism. Joining me from Minneapolis is Andrew Zimmern, four-time James Beard award-winning personality chef, social activist, author, and host and creator of MSNBC's What's Eating America. Andrew is co-founder of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which was created to ensure the survival of restaurants impacted by COVID-19. He recently won a 2020 Daytime Emmy for Outstanding Travel and Adventure Program for his series, the Zimmern List and uh, What's Eating America has been nominated for a 2020 Environmental Media Association Award for Best Documentary Series. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Uh, what a joy to have you on. I've always been a fan of uh, your fare on the cable dial, but then I saw you interviewed intimately on Nightline. Was it 10 years ago in 2010?
2: Uh, yeah, I was going to guess maybe a little longer, but you know better than I do.
0: And I could not reconcile this persona who I would see on TV, who had so much aplomb and control, and you could put him in dicey situations anywhere, in fear of gastrointestinal distress or or foreign languages, and and, and situations where he didn't want to offend anyone, with the person who you were in the early '80s in New York. Could you unpack that for me?
2: Sure, and and what you saw on tv that gastrointestinal distress the desire to be a good guest fitting in trying to maintain some aspect of selflessness and let other people tell their stories all the all of those things in many cases were dwarfed by the amount of actual you know danger that the crew and i were in the lengths that we went to get stories some of the countries that we were in and the things that we were doing were were fairly groundbreaking You know, at at the time that we were doing Bizarre Foods, uh, there was my show and there was Bourdain's show and everything else was like, you know, a Rick Steve walk around Ireland kind of program. So in many cases, it it was groundbreaking what Tony was trying to do and what I was trying to do. And and what you're referring to on the underside of that was the the cratering of my life and recratering and continual re of my life that I experienced as an active drug addict and alcoholic in New York City in the uh, late 70s and all throughout the 80s, finally sobering up uh, in January of 92 after being uh, homeless for a year and existing as a street junkie and petty thief squatting a building in Lower Manhattan simply reduced to a user of people and a taker of things that's that's what i had become a a fairly tawdry excuse for a human being um and miraculously was plucked off the junk heap of humanity and sprinkled with dignity and respect here in minnesota the first couple years that i was getting sober and really the it's you know other human beings saved my life and gave me uh Second chance, uh, which is why I name all my scholarship funds the second chance funds. And you know, I alcoholics and drug addicts clean up pretty well if they are able to get sober and stay sober. It is, uh, it's quite an amazing thing what happens to all human beings who are traumatized once they are given that dignity and respect and opportunity to heal. It's incredible how committed they become not only to helping others but being productive members of society and that includes that includes refugees that includes returning citizens from jails and institutions it's much broader than just recovering alcoholics and 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 addicts it's it's anyone who's been traumatized and I think it's especially important to remember today because we are going through a global trauma that uh, unless you've been in a recovering world of some kind, or done trauma work yourself, you don't understand the nature of trauma. It's, it's such a negative human condition. It's also one of the few emotional conditions that can be passed down generation to generation. It can be passed into the workplace. It can be passed uh, into non-bio families of any definition. Trauma not transformed is transmitted, and the, the what keeps me up at night when people say what keeps you up at night because I I work on a lot of civic undertakings both global national and here in the Twin Cities um, it's the collective trauma of the uncertainty and anxiety of the age that we live in because you can see it playing out in front of us in real time on the news and I'm I so few people really understand trauma and I'm just desperately afraid for the hundreds of millions of people in the world who are going to be going out with sideways reactions and inappropriate responses to everyday happenstance simply because of the trauma of the last couple of years, both globally with the rise of authoritarianism and, of course, most recently with the dual pandemics that we have in this country.
0: Andrew, take me back to, I guess, what was the uh... Inception of the trauma in your life that, as I've seen you in interviews, you say you revisit constantly. uh, What happened to you as a 13 year old in 1974? You grew up in Manhattan?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the initial trauma was uh, divorce and abandonment uh, that happened when I was six or seven years old. You know, at 24 years of sobriety, I was in a trauma workshop uh, at the Rio Retreats at the Meadows in Arizona. I'm Every year, I try to go away somewhere and do some kind of work on myself, and I was challenged that I had been abandoned by my father. My father was my hero, still is my hero. But what was fascinating to me was my denial about my father's role in my life and the acceptance, finally, that he could still be my hero, but that he made a mistake when I was 13 years old when my mother went into the hospital to cover up a uh, what was an appendix scar from decades earlier uh with something new called plastic surgery you know and the bikini bottoms had dropped and she wanted to wear a very chic swimsuit and uh, they forgot to take a, a blood test and gave her the wrong anesthesia in the hospital um and she was in went into a coma she was in a coma for months and then years in mental hospitals and never fully regained all her faculties um significant portions of her of her brain cells died off uh and those are don't replicate. Um, and so she became functioning and was able to work in a job of very little responsibility at a company, Vanek and Associates, a, or now Vanek Global a Financial Service Industry, for, for whom I'm very grateful. They employed my mother uh, for over 20 years and gave her a life that no one else was capable of giving her, not even her own family. Again, people sprinkling another human being who had gone through trauma with dignity and respect. But it took me a while to understand what had gone on in my family. But yes, the the divorce was the initial trauma. The, the hospitalization and subsequent lifetime illness that my mother was combating was really the resounding big trauma that I never was able to address significantly and was the catalyst for a lot of my internal feelings. Now, I have to take personal responsibility for a lot of that myself. You know, I had options, you know, girlfriends, parents, uh, teachers, friends, parents, friends, uh, judges, sports coaches. I mean, I could, just, I could just list hundreds of types of people who came to me and tried to explain to me that it was OK to feel the feelings that I was feeling and that drugs and alcohol were not the answer. And I told them all to go take a hike and. Um,
0: when did you try your first drink and kind of realize its quasi therapeutic self medicine attributes? Eight,
2: seven. You know, I, my really? older cousins gave me a sip of a couple sips of a of a strong drink with a lot of fruity stuff to cover up the alcohol and I just remember laughing and giggling and sort of falling asleep in the car early on the drive home from the Thanksgiving in 1970. But I had sipped enough alcohol. I had uh, enough friends with older siblings who were, you know, marijuana users that when the tragedy happened to my mother in the summer of 1974 and I returned home uh, from summer camp to find my mother in an oxygen tent, I knew exactly what could remove those feelings that I was having because my father... Who had been in the navy in the Pacific in World War II, Greatest Generation, helped build one of the biggest ad agencies in the world. He was just an absolutely larger-than-life character. His suggestion to me was, you know, he told me we're going to talk about this once, and then you're going to stick your chin up and your chest out, and we're going to march forward. And you know, that's how he dealt with things. I was a 13 year old kid who just lost his mom. Um, it made no sense to me, and. I immediately—I mean, that night in our apartment, you know, with the liquor. I mean, look, 1974 was different. We had a charge at the drugstore downstairs, so I could order up any prescription painkiller, hypnotic—you name it—I could call downstairs and get it from the then Staub pharmacy that was on the corner of 71st Street and Lexington Avenue in New York. Uh, we did charge at the liquor store. We had a wad of petty cash, uh, stuffed behind the silverware caddy so that the people who were taking care of me, my father returned to his apartment downtown in lower Manhattan so that the caregivers who were living in the home could, you know, credit cards, uh, ATM machines, you know, most of those really didn't exist in a much different world uh, back in 1974 and cash was king. So, you know, there was always a couple hundred dollars worth of cash. So I learned within a matter of months, I could take two or three hundred dollars out of that stack of cash Go buy, you know, a quarter pound of weed, a couple grams of coke, whatever it was. Uh, sell some of it for more than what it cost me, and keep the rest for myself. And it, mm. that that started the very casual, you know, high school drug dealing story that I was a part of, and it started me down a very, very, very evil and pernicious road uh, that is alcoholism and drug addiction. And by the way, I should also say I, I do believe that had the issues with my mother not happened and I started using drugs and alcohol even casually, I would have become an addict and alcoholic anyway. My addiction is something that I, I refer to as, as more. Anything that makes me feel good, I want more of. And it, it is a, a very, very damaging core piece of me that I – I now manage today much more effectively i see it pop up almost on a daily basis whether it's you know uh, food relationships you know anything that makes me feel good i want more of and that's a that's actually a very destructive path to go down so i'm constantly uh, checking that you know many times a day and using the spiritual toolkit that I learned in early sobriety to help me combat that disease of more that's just inside of me doing push-ups all the time.
0: That was a flashback to my 2020 talk with renowned TV foodie Andrew Zimmern. Catch the entire interview wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. And once again, hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, across the Great Commonwealth, WPVM, and KPPQ. Please message me to run full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.